0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part three of the murder of Belinda Temple. Last week, we got a detailed look into the crime scene, and this week, we're going to look into David's statements, his alibi, and what the temple's neighbors remember from that one-and-a-half-hour window when she could have been killed. As always, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. While the temple's house was being processed by investigators, David was taken down to what 2020 describes as a substation of the police department. Once there, the detective started out by asking David which park he took Evan to. David told the officer that he'd taken his son to Peckham Park about five and a half miles away from his house, but then corrected himself. This time, he said he'd taken Evan to Cimarron Park, which is the park right by their house just a half a mile away. One was a 15-minute drive and the other was three minutes, the difference between a public park and a neighborhood park. I've seen two versions of the next series of events. One version is that David and Evan never even got to the park because Evan asked for a drink before getting there. And the version of events in the court documents says that David told detectives that they'd stayed at the park for a few minutes before Evan asked for that drink. Either way, the park led to buying that drink, which is where the timeline really comes into play. David and Evan either hit Simran Park for a few minutes or drove on past it, but definitely wound up at Brookshire Brothers Grocery Store to get Evan that drink. While they were there, they picked up that cat food that was photographed in the passenger seat of David's blue Chevy pickup. Based on court documents on fine law, it looks like David planned on taking Evan to Peckham Park after getting Evan that drink, It's less than a mile away, so that would make sense. But he decided not to. He said he wanted to head home so he could be there in time for dinner and so that a well-rested Belinda could make it to her bunco game night that evening. You might assume that this meant that David went straight home from the grocery store, but you would be wrong. David, who skipped the park to head home for dinner, decided that he wanted to stop by Home Depot to look at some shelving for baby Aaron's room. Seems kind of odd considering Belinda had just hung shelves by herself. I mean, they did have shelving brackets that they needed to exchange for the correct size, but David hadn't brought those with him. They were still in Belinda's car. On the surface, something already smelled off, but let's break this timeline down to its bare bones to figure out just how off it was. From Cimarron Park to Brookshire Brothers Grocery Store is about a five-mile drive, roughly 12 minutes, and it's in the direction away from the house. There were several places David could have gotten Evan a drink between the park and that 12-minute drive to Brookshire Brothers, including grocery stores and fast food places. But let's just say that he really needed to pick up the cat food. Both Kroger and Heb would have been a six-minute drive, which is half the time he chose to take to go all the way to Brookshire Brothers. Nonetheless, David and Evan were seen on CCTV entering the grocery store at 4.32 p.m. and leaving the store six minutes later at 4.38 p.m. Since the drive from the house to the park was three minutes and the park to the grocery store was 12 minutes, there are roughly 17 minutes missing. Either David left the house after 4 p.m., there was a significant amount of traffic, or he did in fact take Evan to the park and the missing time accounts for buckling or unbuckling Evan from his seat if Evan's car seat was ever actually in the truck, and the few minutes they may or may not have spent at the park. We know David left Brookshire Brothers at 4.38 p.m. and decided against taking Evan to Peckham Park so that they could be home in time for dinner, a plan that makes no sense considering they didn't go straight home and instead went to Home Depot. The trip from the grocery store to Home Depot should have taken around 15 minutes. However, David wasn't seen walking into Home Depot until 36 minutes later. And while that isn't a monumental gap of time, the timeframe of when Belinda could have been killed isn't monumental. We're talking about an hour and a half. So when a 15-minute trip takes 36 minutes, it's worth checking out. So just because we can, let's map out how long it would take to make a stop in between the grocery store and Home Depot. Let's pick the Temple's house. Was there enough time for David to go home before making it to Home Depot? Yes, Yes, there was. The trip from the grocery store back to his house and then to Home Depot would have taken roughly 28 minutes, again, leaving time to spare, eight minutes to be exact. Now, David said that it took 36 minutes because there was traffic. However, court documents say that a guy David went to high school with saw him and his blue Chevy Blazer at the intersection of Morton Ranch Road and Katie Hockley Cutoff, which made absolutely no sense. That intersection is north of the grocery store. Why would he have gone further north, away from his house, when he was skipping the park to go home, but stopping by Home Depot, which was well out of the way? For what it's worth, that intersection is very close to his parents' house, though David denies he was there. I suppose this guy he went to high school with mistook someone else for the David Temple, their high school football hero, the Temple of Doom. But moving along... Regardless of how David got to Home Depot and why it took so long, he was seen walking in at 5.14 p.m. There is no footage of him walking out. It does not exist. He is never seen leaving the store. Riddle me that. David said he stopped at Home Depot to look at shelves for the baby room. Okay, whatever. But anyone who's ever been into a Home Depot knows that it's a well-organized mess and it takes a hot minute to get where you need to go. But it doesn't look like David spent much time walking around or looking at these supposed shelves because a witness has him pulling back up to his house and into his garage at 525 p.m., just 11 minutes later. Which is strange considering it takes just about that long, 12 minutes or so, to drive from Home Depot back to his house. He literally would have had to walk into Home Depot, Superman spinned, teleported back into his truck, which would explain the lack of footage of him exiting the store, and then hit every green light on the way home, avoiding any traffic whatsoever. The witness who saw David pull into his garage at 5.25 p.m. was a woman named Angela who was walking to a friend's house who lived on the same street as the temples. She recalled the time pretty specifically because she'd just gotten into an argument with her boyfriend and had gotten locked out of her house, which is why she was walking down the street in the first place. By 5.30 p.m., one of the temple's neighbors, named Natalie, was driving by their house after picking up her kids from daycare. And at that point, Michael, the neighbor who had run after David in the previous episodes, was already standing at the temple's back gate with their dog losing its shit on him for trying to run after David. Natalie recognized Michael because she lived next door to him. Natalie's house looked onto the corner that the temple's house sat on. Now that we've covered David's timeline of events, let's talk about everyone else's, specifically the temple's neighbors. After responding to the call that Belinda had been brutally murdered in her bedroom closet, police went out and canvassed the neighborhood. They knocked on doors and asked anyone and everyone what they might have seen or heard throughout the afternoon. At the time Belinda was killed, kids were coming home from school, people were coming home from work, and several were out getting their mail. There was no shortage of people walking around this neighborhood. David says he left the house at around 4 p.m., so let's start there. According to the court documents, around 4 p.m., Peggy, Michael's wife, the woman who lived across the street from the temples, walked one of her kids' friends down the street. This friend had come over after the kids got off the bus, and it was time for them to go home. During this walk, Peggy didn't hear or see anything that caused her to think that this day was different than any other. Between 4:10 pm and 420 pm, two different people from the neighborhood went to check their mail. What makes this particularly significant is that their mailboxes were all boxed together in a cluster of mailboxes that sat across the street from the temple’s house. and I’m talking so close that they could have heard someone sneeze from the temple’s yard. Neither of those witnesses saw or heard anything while they were getting their mail, and neither did Peggy when she was walking back to her house around the same time. When Peggy got back to the house, she and Michael put on their shoes and went for a walk around the neighborhood. This was something they did regularly, and the walks generally took about 40 minutes. And from 4.20 to 5 p.m., neither Michael nor Peggy heard anything unusual. That being said, at 4.30 p.m., a woman named Cynthia, who lived in the temple's neighborhood, said that her dog started running up and down their back fence and started barking. This would have been just before David got to Brookshire Brothers. Cynthia's dog barking did strike her as unusual, so she went out to check what was going on and noticed that her shed door was open, also unusual. Now, this document says that Cynthia shared a back corner of her fence with the temples, but when I ran a report, it showed that she and her husband definitely lived in the same neighborhood, but the house I saw registered under their names was half a mile away. Maybe they were renting or maybe everything I looked up was wrong, but what I do know is that even though she reports that her dog was barking, no one heard the Temple's dog barking. And the Temple's dog had a bark that everyone in the neighborhood knew. Their dog was known for its protective demeanor and frankly scared the shit out of a lot of people. None of the people mentioned above recall hearing the Temple's dog barking at all until Michael ran up to the back fence. Peggy didn't hear it walking her kid's friend home. She and her husband didn't hear it on their walk. Cynthia didn't hear it when her own dog started barking. No one heard it when they were at that cluster of mailboxes across the street. And Angela didn't hear it when she walked by at 5.25 p.m. when she saw David pull into their driveway. This was a dog that you would have expected to be losing its shit if an intruder walked into the backyard, broke into the house, started burglarizing it, before shooting and killing Belinda and then walking back out, seemingly unnoticed by anyone else in the neighborhood. But there's one witness we haven't talked about. Well, technically three. Three children who lived in the house behind the temples. The boys got off the bus at 3.47 p.m., walked to their house, and after about 15 minutes or so, sat down to watch a movie together. According to 2020, it was Dr. Doolittle, which is a freaking classic. I'd love to know how to get three children to all agree on the same movie and then sit quietly together and watch it, but that's not why we're here. Later that night, police knocked on their door to see if anyone had seen or heard anything and it's at that point that the kids told their dad that they had heard a boom earlier while watching their movie. In the 2020 episode, you can see officers questioning them about the boom, and one boy said it sounded like a firework, while another one said it sounded like a gun. Police felt like they might be onto something, but they needed to figure out exactly when these boys heard this boom. So, Four entire days later, on January 15th, police were back at the boys' house and this time they had a plan. According to 2020, they were going to try and figure out what scene in Dr. Doolittle the boys were watching when they heard this alleged boom. Not exactly science, but they're working with kids here. According to court documents, detectives settled on the boom happening 26 minutes and five seconds into the movie, which put the boom around 4.30 p.m., If that boom was the gunshot that killed Belinda and David walked into the grocery store at 4.32 p.m., it couldn't have been him. But those boys were the only ones who reported hearing it. Not Natalie, who had gotten home from work prior to picking up her kids from daycare, not Cynthia, who had gone outside to check on her dog, who was running and barking along the fence, and not Michael and Peggy, who were out on their walk around the neighborhood. The bottom line here is that a gun did go off. And the only people who reported hearing anything were three kids inside of a house watching a movie. Everyone outside didn't hear a thing. But the court documents have a theory. The state's theory as to how a shotgun went off and the entire neighborhood didn't hear it is that the closet Belinda was killed in was the most concealed room inside of that house. It was a closet lined with clothes within a bathroom within a bedroom. That it was possible the sound of the gun was muffled by the clothes, the bathroom, and the bedroom, leaving very little, if any, sound to have been heard outside the house. With all this talk about timelines and witnesses, it's easy to forget that while all of this was going on, David was being interviewed by police, and detectives didn't go easy on David at all. For reasons that are pretty obvious now, things just weren't adding up. The glass, the TV, the open drawers that looked untouched. The fact that their neighbor, let alone the police, couldn't get past the dog, but somehow a stranger burglar murderer did. When all of this was pointed out to David, court documents say that he seemed to get agitated. The detective who interviewed David said that as the interview went on, he got irritated and aggressive, taking note that David would shake and bounce in his chair when he spoke to this detective, who said that David was hesitant with many of his answers, and said that David wouldn't look him in the eye. Most off-putting, though, seemed to be that David didn't cry. Sure, everyone responds differently to grief, but this guy had not only just lost his wife, but also his unborn daughter, and he wasn't shedding a tear. In David's 911 call, he did sound emotional, but if you recall, when David came outside to put the dog in the garage so the police could come in, he was described as calm. It was all just so off. When David's interview was over, the detective didn't hold back at all and told detective that because he was in the inner circle and because he didn't appear to be cooperating in all of his answers, he couldn't be eliminated and would have to be considered a suspect. And suspect is a big word. Person of interest is pretty run-of-the-mill. You're a person that police are interested in looking into. But being named a suspect means that you're suspected of being involved in something. You're no longer simply of interest to the police. It should come as a shock to absolutely no one that after David left this interview, he did not pass go. He did not collect $200. He went straight to his parents' house and contacted an attorney. That attorney told 2020 that he drove more than 130 miles an hour to get to David that night. And when he got there, told David, either you're innocent and we have to have a full and complete investigation, or you did it and we have to make sure that nobody can figure out enough to prove it in court. Which feels icky as fuck, but defense attorneys have to do what defense attorneys do, I guess. This attorney told the show that David said he was innocent and to do anything he had to do to make sure these people were caught these people being Belinda's killers, I suppose. From what we've gone over so far, it's clear that the first 24 hours of Belinda's investigation was intense and it wasn't about to slow down. By the following day, January 12th, the police got wind that David might have been having an affair with someone he worked with named Heather. So Heather was brought in for questioning. Detectives asked her about this alleged affair and she denied it, saying that she had just seen David occasionally over the previous three months at employee happy hours and things like that. According to court documents, when Heather was asked if she'd ever been on a date with David, she said no, and that their relationship was casual and not romantic, which is a weird statement to make. I don't know what a not romantic casual relationship is if it's not just a friend. Heather went on to say that six days prior to Belinda's murder, so January 5th, she talked to David about not continuing their relationship, you know, their not romantic casual relationship. So she had a conversation about not being friends anymore? The whole interview felt like ring around the bullshit, and it was. Because after this interview, the court documents say that Heather wound up contacting an attorney, and just like that, decided that she needed to have another chat with the detectives. This time, an honest one. This time, Heather told detectives that David had spent New Year's with her and that they did, in fact, have a sexual relationship. So that hunting trip right around Belinda's birthday wasn't a hunting trip at all. It was a slumber party with his mistress. He had spent New Year's Eve through January 2nd at her condo. And Heather didn't live alone. She had a roommate, so there were witnesses. This affair was no longer alleged and opened a can of worms that could never be closed. David had met Heather at the high school they both worked at during the 1998-1999 school year. But lo and behold, David wasn't the only married high school employee that was interested in Heather. So was David's friend and co-worker, Quentin. Quentin was on that 2020 episode and talked a lot about this whole high school love triangle deal. And it seems like Quentin and Heather's relationship was more of a flirtatious, but maybe it'll be something kind of thing. While David, on the other hand, was more serious about Heather. Three months prior to Belinda's death, so sometime around October, David actually called Quentin over to his house, the one his pregnant wife and son lived at, because he wanted to have a chat with Quentin about their common love interest. So Quentin got in his truck and drove over to David's house, pulled up into the temple's driveway, and David hopped in. The two went for a drive, and on that drive, David asked Quentin a question. David wanted to know what Quentin's intentions were with Heather. He wanted to know if Quentin was willing to leave his wife for her. Quentin said that he wasn't and asked David the same question. David's answer? I don't know. It seems like shortly after this, as October rolled on, that Quentin backed off and David took the reins. Heather's roommate at the time told 2020 that she noticed Heather and David started getting closer at a Halloween party they were at. After that Halloween party, the roommate said that she started seeing a lot more of David at her and Heather's condo. She described David as being polite and affectionate towards Heather, which is almost deja vu when it comes to how people describe David when he first started dating Belinda. It just seems like maybe he only had enough of that in him for one love interest at a time. As the November and December holidays approached, court documents state that David started showering Heather with gifts, like flowers and perfume, and perfume is such a cliche dude gift, but anyway. For Christmas, David gave Heather a gold necklace, so he was willing to shell out some money. All of this mistress gifting was happening around the same time that Belinda's sister Barbara had witnessed that argument between David and Belinda, where Belinda accused him of not wanting this baby girl. We know that David spent New Year's through January 2nd with Heather and that Heather told detectives that on the 5th, the two of them had a conversation about not continuing their relationship. However, it doesn't seem like that conversation made much of a difference because according to court documents, just days later on January 8th, which is three days before Belinda was killed, David sent Heather a text telling her that he loved her, and Heather told him that she felt the same way. Now, David denies that this conversation ever took place. Now that we've covered the timeline, the mistress, and the first 48 hours of Belinda's investigation, let's move on to the 13th. Court documents state that on January 13th, some of Belinda's friends and family went over to David's parents' house, Obviously, the temple house wasn't an option, but they still needed somewhere to mourn together and remember their sunshine girl. Unfortunately, though, that gathering was interrupted by an impromptu family meeting. Everyone except David, his father, and his two brothers were asked to go outside so the men could talk. David's dad and brothers point blank asked David if there was anything they needed to know. Sounds like the police weren't the only ones who had some questions. David initially told them no, that there was nothing, but his denial didn't last long. I mean, how could it? Police were going to talk to everyone. This affair was going to be public knowledge. It was either tell them himself or let his family find out from someone else, be it the police or maybe even the news. So he changed his tune. David told his father and his brothers that he'd been having an affair and that he and his mistress had had a weekend together. Seems like a downplay to me, but who's keeping score? Everyone, literally everyone is keeping score. David's mom wasn't at this meeting of the men and wasn't there for David's adulterous confession. And I can't tell you why she was excluded, but she was eventually looped in. After coming clean to his parents, David felt the need to come clean to Belinda's sister, Barbara. And you might think this is where David just surrendered to the truth and hopped on the honesty train, but he more so just made it to the parking lot of the train station of truth. He pulled Barbara aside and told her that he had gone hunting, which we all know is bullshit, and that while he was hunting, he'd gotten really drunk and kissed a girl. Yes, he was telling Belinda's sister that while he was looking for deer to shoot in the woods, he somehow stumbled upon a woman while he was shitty drunk and happened to kiss her. If your eyes just rolled so far into the back of your head that they literally got stuck, you're not alone. Why continue to lie at this point? He had told his own parents the truth, but when it came to Belinda's family, it was still lie o'clock. Did he think he could keep this secret forever? Did he think his family would keep his secret forever? Did he think he had enough control over this entire horrific situation that he could just say whatever the fuck he wanted and not be held accountable for it? If he was willing to continue to pick and choose the truth and who he told it to, how deep did the lies run? At this point, all Barbara could process was that her sister had been murdered and her sister's husband was a cheating piece of shit. Barbara was done with David's bullshit. She'd been done well before all of this happened, but now she was done done. So she got up to leave the room and didn't bother to stop when David insisted that he knew what he'd done was wrong, that he wouldn't do anything to hurt Belinda, and that he hoped Barbara didn't hate him. One, no one cares. Two, you did hurt Belinda, the degree of that is to be determined. And three, I think it's safe to say that Barbara won't be sending him any birthday texts in the future. The following day, January 14th, was the day before Belinda's funeral. The planning of her funeral was heart-wrenching, and honestly, that word doesn't even feel like it covers the amount of pain that her family was in. Not only were Belinda's parents laying their daughter to rest, they were laying their unborn granddaughter to rest too. The daughter that Belinda wanted nothing more than to hold and protect, but wasn't given that chance. According to an interview with Nancy Grace, the day before the funeral was the first time since Belinda's murder that David had even spoken to her parents. It had been three and a half horrific days of emotional torture and a murder investigation and David hadn't reached out to them once, not to mourn together, not to check on them, nothing. I can't fathom a situation on any planet, this one or poor Pluto that doesn't even count anymore, where your spouse and unborn child are brutally murdered in the home that you shared together and you don't so much as reach out to your in-laws once but it wasn't about to get any better. Belinda's parents told Nancy Grace that on the day of the funeral, David acted like it was any other day. They said that he didn't shed a single tear and never once made eye contact with them. They couldn't for the life of them understand how their entire world had just came crumbling down while David seemed to be functioning just fine. Cool, calm, and collected at the funeral of his murdered wife and unborn child that attitude however seemed to continue long after the funeral according to court documents shortly after Belinda's funeral David reached out to his buddy Quentin and it wasn't to lose his shit and ugly cry to his bestie no David called Quentin to apologize to him that he was having to go through this. Dude couldn't even pick up the phone to so much as call Belinda's parents, but was willing to call his buddy to apologize for the inconvenience his wife's murder and subsequent investigation was causing in his life. While on the phone with Quentin, this asshole asked him to tell Heather, his mistress, that he was sorry that she was having to go through this as well. His wife's murder investigation was fresh out of the gate and the only apologies he was dishing out were to his mistress and the guy who'd been a staple in that love affair since the beginning. A couple of weeks went by while the investigation continued and David resumed what was left of his normal life, which included a lunch date with none other than Quentin. David used this lunch date as a vent session where he complained to Quentin that the police had been following him and not treating him well. Naturally, Quentin asked why he wouldn't just talk to the police and clear his name, but David told him that his attorney had advised him against speaking to the police. And while David didn't seem to want to clear his name with the police, which, let's be honest, he didn't do a great job of in the first attempt, that didn't stop him from trying to clear his name with Quentin. David told him that the day Belinda had been killed, he'd gone to the store and bought cat food, that he even had a receipt for it, so a cat food alibi, if you will. And while that's certainly true, he did buy cat food, knowing what we know about the timeline, it really isn't worth a whole lot. And this is a total side note, but I think that it's interesting that David led with the cat food. We only know about the cat food because of the photos of the truck from the scene. This could be petty and mean absolutely nothing, but David hadn't told the police that he'd gone to the store specifically to buy cat food. He said that he'd gone there because Evan wanted something to drink. The cat food seemed like more of a while-we're-here kind of purchase. And like we pointed out earlier in the episode, there were plenty of places David could have gone for that cat food and drink that were closer than the store they went to. It's also interesting that according to these court documents, it doesn't look like he mentioned the park or the trip to Home Depot, as if those errands didn't matter to his alibi. Wouldn't all of his stops be important? They were never able to determine a time of death for Belinda because the window was already so small. So, like I said, wouldn't every single place he went to have been of importance to proving his innocence if that's what he was trying to do? No one could understand why David wasn't trying harder to clear his name if he wasn't guilty, why he wasn't yelling from the rooftops that they needed to be trying to find the killer and stop wasting their time on him. According to court documents, when asked if David even wanted to find his wife's killer, he said, What difference is it going to make? It's not going to bring her back. And yes, we all just raged. David didn't seem afraid of the fact that someone might have entered his house and murdered his wife. David didn't seem worried about what might have happened if Evan had been there. David didn't seem worried about who might have done it and if they planned on killing more than just Belinda. There was no pleading for justice, just indifference and David's indifference is where I'm going to leave you today. Next week, we'll talk about what happened in the months after Belinda's murder, where the investigation led, and what David's life looked like in between. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Belinda's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me, and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcasts ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part four of The Murder of Belinda Temple a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Also, I know that I say continue wrong, continue, continue. It comes out weird. It comes out wrong sometimes.